Bibles now, if you would please, to Nehemiah chapter 13. And we do have the right sermon up tonight. And this evening we're in our uh, last message in this study of Nehemiah. And over the past 12 weeks or so uh, of studying this, we've been able to see the workings of a man that we could say was just exemplary in his faith. I mean, he was a man of prayer. He was a man of faith and a man of action. And of course, it's good for us to be people of prayer. It's good for us to have the faith that God wants us to have. But we also need to be people of action. We need to get out and do something. And what Nehemiah did as he uh, came back to Jerusalem and started rebuilding that wall, he kindled a fire under the people of God. There was a real revival that swept the entire nation of Israel. And when the people got to working and they saw what God could do through them... And rebuilding the wall, boy, that's when they really got back to God's word. They got into praise and into sacrifice once again. But there's one thing that we learn uh, about fires, and that is if you don't keep putting wood on the fire, if you don't keep fueling the fire, then eventually the fire goes out. And this is actually what happened in Israel. Nehemiah was called back to go to Persia for a time. Don't really know how long that was. But while he was in Persia, the people of God went back on their uh, devotion. They went back on the commitment that they'd made to God. They went back on all those promises that they made, and they found themselves in trouble once again. Now, two weeks ago, if you remember, I preached the message, a covenant of commitment. Israel made a commitment to God. They, They got on fire, and they got right with God. But that commitment during the time that Nehemiah was gone, something happened to it. It just died out. And so Nehemiah had to reinstitute the same reforms that he started with in the very beginning. So what we're going to talk about tonight is really an old path that we've already walked throughout the study of Nehemiah. But it's a necessary one because this is the way that Israel went. And so we're going to have to go back over some things as we sum up our uh, study of the book of Nehemiah tonight. Now this evening, the title of my message is Take Time to be holy. And in this 13th chapter, I think there's some things here that'll help us to understand what we need to do in our lives, how we need to take time to be holy. Now, I want to read verse number six of this chapter to begin with. If you'd stand with me, please. Look at Nehemiah chapter 13, verse number six. We'll read this and then we'll go back to the beginning of the chapter. But in verse number six, Nehemiah says, But in all this time was not I at Jerusalem. For in the two and thirtieth year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, came I unto the king, and after certain days obtained I leave of the king. Now, that's what I was talking about just a moment ago. Nehemiah was called to go back to Persia, and we really don't know how much time he spent there. Some say it was quite a bit of time. Some say about a year. Others think that it was longer because for Israel to get back in the shape that they were in would have taken some time, but we don't know exactly how much time. But he was called back to Persia, but then he returned to Jerusalem. Now let's go back to verse number one of the chapter. And it says, On that day they read in the book of Moses in the audience of the people, and therein was found written that the Ammonite and the Moabite should not come into the congregation of God forever, because they met not the children of Israel with bread and with water, but hired Balaam against them that he should curse them. Howbeit our God turned the curse into a blessing. Now it came to pass when they had heard the law that they separated from Israel all the mixed people. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word and what we learn here. We just ask you, Lord, to guide us as we speak on this subject tonight. Take time to be holy. And Lord, I just pray that you might help your people learn something about holiness 
and what we need to do in our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I think you can see in those first three verses of the chapter that we've just read that Israel was back into their old problems. One of the problems that they had for so many centuries, just so many years throughout their history, was this penchant that they have to mix it up with people in foreign countries. Now, God told Israel that they were to be separated from all the people that were around them. And the reason that God said for them to do that was not because of their race. I mean, it wasn't because that they were ethnically better than all the rest of the people of the world. But this separation was purely for religious reasons. And that's because Israel worshipped the one true God. They worshipped Jehovah God. And God had called them out to be a special people. And very simply, the rest of the people in the world, God had not spoken to them. And God had not called them. And so God said that they were to separate themselves from these unholy people. Now, this is the first thing I think that we need to learn when we become a Christian. A thing that will help you so much in your Christian life. Number one in your outline tonight is we're to keep our associations holy. That means to keep your friendships holy. And I don't think that I could put it in a simpler way than to say, choose your friends wisely. Choose the people that you fellowship with among God's people. Now, when Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem, he found that there was a mixed multitude there. And particularly in this mixed multitude, there were Ammonites and Moabites. Now, those were people that God specifically said, you're not to mix with those people. Don't have anything to do with Moabites and Ammonites. Now, it says in our text verses here in verse number two that they read in the book of the law, and it gives us the reason why that God said you're not supposed to mix with these people. Now, to understand that a little bit better, we have to go back in the history of Israel. Right when Israel left Egypt and they were headed for the promised land, one of the first places that they came to was the land of Moab. And the shortest distance to get from where they were to get into the promised land was to go straight through the land of Moab. So Moses went to the leaders of Moab and he asked them, would you give us permission to go across your land? And the Moabites said no. They said that they wouldn't let them pass. So they refused to let them pass. They didn't offer any assistance to the people of God as they went through, but they even went a step further. Now the people of Moab were afraid of the Israelites. They saw what God, they saw what God had done for them and how uh, God had prospered them and allowed them to get out of Egypt, and they became afraid of Israel. So what they decided to do was to hire a prophet by the name of Balaam. And they told Balaam, we want you to curse the people of God. Now, most of you are probably familiar with that story. Uh, That's the story in the Bible where you remember a donkey was allowed to speak. Balaam was on his way to curse Israel, And he was traveling along and he was riding his donkey. And God put an angel with a sword in the way of that donkey, in the path where Balaam was riding the donkey. Well, the donkey could see the angel, but Balaam couldn't. And, you know, that's, I think, like a lot of preachers that I know. They don't have as much spiritual insight as that donkey had, I think, sometimes. But they weren't able, uh, Balaam was not able to see this angel. And so when the donkey approached the angel, he became afraid. And the first thing he did is he took off into the field. And that made Balaam mad. 
And so we swatted that donkey to get him back up on the path again. So they took off again. But once again, the angel of the Lord appeared in front of that donkey. And this time, uh, Balaam was going through a, a narrow place in a vineyard. And there was a wall on either side of him. And the donkey couldn't get away. And so the donkey just sort of brushed up against the wall and crushed Balaam's foot as he was going through. Well, that really made Balaam mad. So he, he hit that donkey once again. And the donkey started going. A little bit later down the path, the angel appeared a third time. And this time, the donkey didn't have anywhere to go. And so the donkey just sat right down in the middle of the road. Well, now Balaam is extremely mad. And so he hits that donkey one more time. And the donkey turned around and looked at Balaam. And he said, what are you hitting me for? Why did you do that? Now, the strange thing about the story is that Balaam didn't appear to be too surprised at all that a donkey spoke to him. And so he just started arguing with that donkey. And he said, the reason I hit you is because you're making me look bad. And if I had a sword in my hand right now, I would take that sword and I would kill you. Well, the donkey spoke back to him. He said, now hold on just a minute, Balaam. He said, haven't I been your donkey for a long time? And have you known me to do anything like this before? And if I did something like this, don't you think that I have a good reason for doing it? And that's when God opened Balaam's eyes and he was able to see the angel. Now, I get a picture in my mind when I think about this. When I think about this, it always comes to my mind is that donkey in Shrek. And I hear the voice of Eddie Murphy arguing with with Balaam. That's the picture that I get in my mind. Well... This is, this is the background that Nehemiah is drawing on here. The Moabites had not been friends with Israel, and God had not forgotten about their impudence. And so God commanded. He said, Israel and Moabites cannot mix. And then on top of that, the way that the Ammonites and the Moabites got started was a very wicked thing. Moab and Ammon were the sons of Lot's daughter in an incestuous relationship with Lot. And so it started out bad from the very beginning. So here's the point of this whole thing. God's people and the people of the world can't mix. Now, a little little later on uh, this month in in, in April here, we have another sermon on Sunday morning from the Gospel of John, and I'm going to be speaking about the world and why God's people in the world can't mix. We've got no business making our association with the people of the world because the people of the world hate God, and they hate Jesus, and eventually you're going to find out that they'll hate you too. Now, you'll think for a while that everything's fine and you can get along with the world, but very soon, if you're a child of God and you try to live for the Lord, you'll find out that the world will hate you. And that's because light and darkness do not mix. They can't go together. The prophet Amos said, Can two walk together except they be agreed? And what Amos was talking about, he said, You can't have fellowship with God and have fellowship with the world at the same time. It just won't work. James said in James chapter 4, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enmity, is, is the enemy of God. So you can't walk with the world and walk with God at the same time. God's people and the world are like oil and water. They just don't mix. And as I said, you, you may think that you're all right mixing with the world. You'll find out it won't work. And you'll always find this to be true, that you will harm yourself before you'll help them. That always seems to be true. 
Now, as I say, come back a little bit later in this month, and we're going to talk a little bit more on Sunday morning about this. Take time to be holy, and be holy by making the right kinds of friendships. Now, we see another problem that Nehemiah found when he returned. There was a problem with the priest and the temple. Now, this is in verse number 4. And before this, Eliashib the priest, having the oversight of the chamber of the house of our God, was allied unto Tobiah. And he had prepared for him a great chamber, where aforetime they laid the meat offerings, the frankincense, and the vessels, and the tithes of the corn, the new wine, and the oil, which was commanded to be given to the Levites, and the singers, and the porters, and the offerings of the priest. Now, here is the problem. This is a problem of purification. And Nehemiah and the Word of God is teaching us to keep God's house holy. We must keep God's house holy. Now, when Nehemiah was gone, the high priest Eliashib had profaned the temple of God. Now, once again, here in this story, we see this dastardly Ammonite by the name of Tobiah. We all remember who he is. He's the one who hated the people of God. He mocked God's people as they built the wall. And uh, he did everything that he could to try to stop them. But the problem here is that Eliashib, the high priest, had made a pact with Tobiah. Now, Tobiah was friends uh, with Nehemiah's greatest enemy. That was Sanballat. And what had happened was that one of Eliashib's relatives had married Sanballat's daughter. And through that relationship, he also became friends with Tobiah. Now, that part of this is terrible enough. I mean, the part about uh, one of his relatives marrying uh, one of Sanballat's relatives, that was terrible enough. Because what happened there was this man who was in Eliashib's family had given up his rights to all of his priestly duties. He couldn't be among the the people of God that worked at the temple any longer because he married a heathen woman. Now, that's bad enough, as I said. But Eliashib also became a traitor to God's people because what he did was to give a room in the temple to Tobiah. Now, can you imagine that? An Ammonite, a heathen an enemy of God, one that God said the children of Israel are not even supposed to have anything to do with Ammonites. And yet here the high priest there in Israel had given a room in the very temple of God for this Ammonite to stay. Now that was blasphemy. And so what Eliashib had done, he had desecrated God's temple. So you know what Nehemiah had to do? He had to cleanse the temple. He had to purify it. So we look in verse number seven, we see what Nehemiah did. And I came to Jerusalem and understood of the evil that Eliashib did for Tobiah in preparing him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And it grieved me sore. Therefore, I cast forth all the household stuff of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I commanded, and they cleansed the chambers, and thither brought I again the vessels of the house of God and the meat offering and the frankincense. Now, this was a very strong response. Nehemiah didn't ask anyone. He didn't say, pretty please, can I do this? He just marched into the temple. He picked up all of Tobiah's stuff and he just heaved it right out on the street. Now today, if you're going to do that, you've got to have three court orders and six months notice before you can do it. But not Nehemiah. He took decisive action. And so he didn't care what Eliashib thought about it. He didn't, he didn't care what Tobiah thought about it. I mean, I mean he, he, he wasn't afraid of offending them for what they had done. And sometimes we have to do that. We have to take decisive action. Sometimes you can't just tiptoe around people and and worry about what their feelings are like and whether you're going to offend them or not. When right is right, right is right. Wrong is wrong. And Nehemiah knew what was right and what was wrong. 
Now, one time, even the disciples of Jesus were worried about offending the wicked crowd. Jesus had been pretty rough on the Pharisees. You listen to some of the things that Jesus said about them, scathing remarks that Jesus made, and the teachings that Jesus had. They hated Jesus. But the, but the disciples of Jesus, they became upset with Jesus because he had offended the Pharisees. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 12, they came to Jesus and they said, Knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended after they heard this saying? Now, you see, they, they, weren't, they, they weren't afraid that the Pharisees would be offended at what Jesus did, or they were afraid of what the Pharisees would be offended at what Jesus did, and, and they didn't care at all that Jesus was offended by what the Pharisees did, by the evil that was in their heart. Well, Nehemiah's actions actually become a precursor for the actions of Jesus. You remember there was a time when Jesus had to cleanse the temple. I want you to turn to John chapter 2 for just a moment because that's where we find this story. Jesus came into the temple and he found out that the priests had, had made the temple a place where all kinds of crooked deals were being made. They were selling a, a sacrificial animals and they were profiting from that sale. And if you look in John chapter 2, verse number 13, it tells us about Jesus going into the temple. It says, In the Jews' Passover, this is in verse 13, And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables, And said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house and house of merchandise. So God's temple, that was a very holy place. And there were very strict rules about what could be done in the temple. And about who could even be in the temple. Now God's house is a place of reverence. And the worship of God had to be approached in exactly the same way. And whenever we come into the presence of God, we need to realize there's righteousness and holiness in the presence of our God. Now today, of course, we don't have the same kind of restrictions that they had upon the temple and the worship there. I mean, our church building that we have, this is not really the same thing as a temple in the Old Testament. In fact, the Bible teaches us that in the New Testament that our bodies have become the temple of the Holy Spirit. God dwells in our body if you're a Christian. But I think sometimes that we take that teaching that that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and we forget about this physical place here that we worship. And so we think, well, it's not a holy place. We don't need to worry about that. But I happen to think that where we worship is at least a sanctified place. I mean, this is a place that's set apart for God's use. Here's the place that God has given us to come to, to hear the preaching of God's word and where we come to learn about him. And so, in that sense, at least, it's a hallowed place, a sanctified place. And I might step on a few toes as I say these next statements, but I think that you need to hear this. We need to have some reverence for this place. Now, I personally, now, it's just me, and and, uh, if you don't agree with me, that's fine. But I personally wholeheartedly disagree with anyone who thought that building a gymnasium was the right idea and that playing basketball was more important than having a house that's set aside for worship. I personally think that was a stupid idea. I'll just put it that way. I don't like it. Now, it's not so bad, I don't think, that the building's multipurpose. That's not my real problem. It's the attitude that it instills in people sometimes. 
And we think that because basketball is played here at other times during the week, that Sunday and times of worship are also times of running around and hooping it up in God's house. I have a problem with that. Now, I, I, I believe that some of you parents, you, you really need to be more diligent about teaching your children how to act in this building. Kids run around and, and uh, through classrooms, and, and sometimes they're up here on the platform playing. I think we ought to have some respect for the house of God. Now, some people are going to say, you know, pastor's an old fuddy-duddy, old-fashioned guy. You know, he doesn't want people to enjoy themselves. And pastor wants you to come to church and sit there like you got a board up your spine. I don't think that at all. I, I believe in having fun. I just happen to believe that Sunday's not the time or the place for that kind of rowdiness. We need an attitude of worship. Let's come to church and let's be happy about what we do, but let's don't be flippant about what goes on here. This is very serious business that we're in. So we, we ought to respect our house of worship. Keep God's house holy. And when you walk through those doors, you'll feel a whole lot better about your worship and you'll feel like you want to worship God rather than you're going to a rock concert or something like that. So respect the house of God. And I so much appreciate all those folks that we had out yesterday that came to clean our building to you know, make it presentable for Easter. And we just need to do a little bit more to keep it that way. But let's go on here. Nehemiah threw the stuff out of the temple, but we also noticed that Eliashib had done something else that caused serious consternation uh, to Nehemiah. When Eliashib um, moved Tobiah in, he did something else. He moved out all of the offerings for the Levites. He took those out of the temple. We find it in verse number 10. He says, And I perceived that the portions of the Levites had not been given them. For the Levites and the singers that did the work were fled every one to his field. Then contended I with the rulers and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. Then brought all Judah the tithe of the corn and the new wine and the oil under the treasuries. So here's the next thing that Nehemiah did. He made a proclamation. And that is, we must keep the tithe holy. Now the problem here is that the tithes were being neglected. The Levites were being neglected, and the Levites, of course, were supposed to receive their income from the service of the Lord, from the, from the tithes that were brought into the temple. But what happened here is the Levites had to go out and find jobs. They had to go into the fields and get secular work. Now, way back in the beginning of the nation of Israel, you remember this, that God said that the Levites were to earn their living from the tithes and the offerings of the people. Now, that's one of the reasons why God never gave the Levites any land. You ever notice that? You read, you look at the maps uh, in, in, your, in the back of your Bible with all the, uh, all the tribes, you won't find any land there for the Levites. And the reason that you don't, because the Levites did, did all the service in the temple. And God set them especially aside for that. And God said, you don't have to have fields. You don't have to till, till the fields. We're going to support you by the tithes and offerings of the people. And then we find right here in the book of Nehemiah that that was part of the covenant that the people promised when they made that covenant of commitment we talked about. This is in chapter 10 and in verse number 37. And that we should bring the first fruits of our dough and of our offerings and the fruit of all manner of trees, of wine and of oil, unto the priest, to the chambers of the house of our God, and the tithes of our ground unto the Levites, that the same Levites might have the tithes in all the cities of our tillage. So that's the Old Testament principle. But that was also carried over into the New Testament times. 
that principle for, of support for ministry, for God's ministers. Now, Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse number 17 and 18, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. Now, let me say something to you about the tithe. The tithes and offerings of, God, of God's people are, are really what enables the church to do its ministry. I mean, that's how we do our ministry. It comes from tithes and offerings. And neglect of the tithe in Nehemiah's day meant, as I said before, that the Levites had to go out and find secular jobs. And when they were working out in the fields and doing those things, then that meant that the work of ministry wasn't done. Now, there are lots of reasons for you to tithe. But one of the best reasons for you to tithe, and the scriptures bear it out, is for the support of the ministry. Now, that's a subject that's kind of difficult for me to speak about in my position when I talk about supporting of ministers. But it's biblical, and I have to teach on that as well as I do other things. No church member ought to begrudge the pay of the pastor. Now, the scripture says that those that labor well are to be counted worthy of double honor. And you'll notice in that scripture that I read, it follows it up this way. The laborer is worthy of his reward. Now, what some people think about double honor is that means that you pat the pastor on the back and tell him he's doing a fine job, and then it's okay to starve him to death. That's not what double honor means. Double honor in the context that we have it here just simply means that the pastor is to be taken care of well. And the tithes and the offerings allow that to be done. Now, as I say, it's difficult for me to talk to you about. And certainly, I am grateful for the way the church takes care of me. The church does a, a wonderful job of doing that. But when it comes around to budget time again, nobody ought to look at the budget of the church and think that, well, the pastor's disposable. You ought not to think like that. When the church blesses the pastor, God blesses the church. That's the way it works. Take time to be holy, and we do it with associations. We do it with purification and proclamation that we're going to do everything that God requires of us. Now, let's notice the next area of concern, and this is in verse number 15. If you look there, please. He says, In those days saw I in Judah some treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and lading asses, as also wine, grapes, and figs, and all manner of burdens, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I testified against them in the day wherein they sold victuals. There dwelt men of Tyre also therein, which brought fish and all manner of ware, and sold on the Sabbath unto the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said unto them, What evil thing is this that ye do and profane the Sabbath day? Now, this problem is a problem of consecration, and that is that we are to keep God's day holy. Nehemiah said, now here's another problem that I saw. I came back and I found out that there were people that were on the Sabbath day, and they were doing their business just like it was any other day of the week. And then he said, not only that, but I saw that there were people from Tyre who came in and set up their flea market right there in Jerusalem. So what Israel had done, they turned their backs on the Sabbath. Now, I've already talked about this in this study, so I'm not going to keep you long on this point tonight. But I just want you to notice how prone that these people are to, uh, they are to forget what is so obvious, what they really ought to know. They're prone to forget this. 
You can't honor God and you can't please God without taking special time and setting that aside for worship to Him. You cannot please God unless you do that. Now, again, we don't have all those Sabbath day observances that Israel did. But make no mistake about this. God wants us to hallow a special day for Him. God wants us to keep a special day for Him. And we know that Sunday, of course. That's the Lord's Day. We talked about that before. It's the Lord's Day. Now, maybe you've missed this, but did anybody ever notice that if you decide that you're going to drive down 101 on Sunday, all the traffic that's out there, did you know that they're not going to church? All those people aren't going to church. You know where they're going? Shopping malls. Um, They're going to places of business where they have to work. I mean, that's what they're doing. And people use Sunday just like it's any other day of the week. Now, I want to ask you something. How do you think that it got that way? Why why do you suppose that people do that? You know, I can tell you why. It's because when the stores start opening on Sundays, Christians said, okay, I guess we'll shop too. And when the employer called and said, you know, I'm going to open the business on Sunday... And the Christian said, well, I don't know about that. I'm not sure that I ought to. Well, if you pay me overtime, that's another story. And so the Christians surrendered to that. They said, oh, yes, well, we'll work too. Nobody raised any fuss about it. And now what happens? To hold a job, you've got to work on Sunday. And I, I don't, at least some Sundays, I don't know what you can do about that. I don't have an answer for it. I mean, it's a fact of life now in our society. If you're going to ha- hold a job, you're going to have to work on some Sundays. But let me talk about something else in relation to that. I know some church members and some Christians who don't have to work on Sunday. And maybe they don't shop on Sunday. But they don't have any problem missing church on Sunday. They're off doing something else. They don't care at all whether they're in the Lord's house or not. And if they do decide to grace us by dragging themselves out on Sunday morning, pulling themselves out of bed, and it's so early to get here at 10 o'clock or 11 or whatever, that's so early to get out of bed. And if they do finally get here, then that's enough for them. Two hours on Sunday, that's enough for me. So I'm not coming back Sunday night. Four hours at church on Sunday? What, are you kidding me? What am I, a machine? I can't go to church four hours on Sunday. And some of them say two hours a week. That's plenty for me. Two hours, I don't need any more than that. Well, let me just say, shame on God's people when we take the Lord's day to do anything other than what he wants us to do. Now, I'm not particularly talking about those of you that have jobs and you have to work on Sunday. As I said, that's a fact of life right now. But when you're not doing that and and pray about it, that God will help you through that, Try to get to church. Make an effort to get to church. You know, I know some folks in our church that almost kill themselves to get to church. Look at Dave Sharon back there. Man, he's come beat up so many times, I don't know. I mean, he's so, well, I'm not going to say he's accident prone and all that kind of thing. But bad things happen to him for some reason. I don't know what it all is. But he drags himself in here sore and hurting and comes and does his job. And a lot of us get that little sniffle, you know, and man, I just, I can't make it to church. I can't, I got to stay at home. I just can't get to church. I'm telling you. Monday morning comes, the alarm clock goes off. Well, let's go. Get up and go to work. Don't have any problem at all. And we push God's service completely out of the way. Now, that, that's a problem. Now, here's the thing that I'm telling you. I, I'm not somebody who's going to say to you 
that you have to attend X number of services a week or in a month or even in a year that you have to achieve, you have to attend rather, X number of services and that means that you'll be a good church member if you make those number of services. I'm not going to tell you that. But we all ought to have enough sense to understand this, that there's a number out there somewhere that you're going to reach that if you don't attend church, that nobody's going to say that you're a good church member. Would everybody agree with me? There's a number out there somewhere, and you're going to reach it sometime or another when you don't go to church. So the thing to do is to determine, when I'm doing all these other things, does this please God? And is this keeping God's day holy? Is that what I'm doing? Now, Nehemiah said, we're going to go back to Sabbath worship. And he said, not only are we going to do that, he said, we're going to close the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, and nobody can go in and nobody can go out. You'll find that in verse number 19. Now, do you know what it would be like if I said, you know, church starts at 10 a.m. on Sunday, and when you get here, we're going to lock the doors, and you can't go home until 7.30 on Sunday night. That'd make church attendance on Sunday night pretty good, wouldn't it? You know, sometimes I'm standing out there on Sunday morning, and if you're, not, if you're not out of the way and standing in the right place, you can get run over in the stampede by people trying to get out of the church. Folks, all day long, it's, it's God's day all day long. It's fellowship with one another. Spend some time with one another. All day long is God's day. Now, let me mention one more thing here, and I'll move on. When Nehemiah closed the gates of the city on Sabbath, he, on the Sabbath, he noticed that there were still some people that were milling around on the outside of the wall. Notice some activity that was going on there, and people were still kind of selling a few things here and there. And Nehemiah told those fellows, he said, you guys better move on or I'm going to throw you in jail. I mean, that's really the effect of what he's saying. And then he writes after that, they didn't hang around the wall very much longer. Now, what we have here is somebody who's serious about worship for God. I mean, serious about this. He took it seriously. These people thought about God's, God first, and if it didn't please God, we don't do it. If it doesn't honor God, we're not going to do it. And that's what Nehemiah was trying to bring the people back to. Well, now we come to the final part of the book, and this is really the last reform that we see. And this is an interesting one, because this is a re-emphasis, again, of what some of the most important things that you'll ever learn in your life. One of the most important things you'll ever learn is right here in number five. Take time to be holy through separation. Keep your family holy. Now, we've discussed that before. The family is the background of all societal order. Remember that? It all started with the family. Education, hospitals, all of that, government itself, it all started with the family. And so when you destroy the family, you destroy society. And I'll guarantee you this, you destroy the family, you'll destroy your church. Now, Nehemiah says, I've discovered that some people have gone back on their promise to separate their families. Look at verse number 23. In those days also, I uh, saw I Jews that had married wives of Ashdod, of Ammon, and of Moab. And their children spake half in the speech of Ashdod and could not speak in the Jews' language, but according to the language of each people. And I contended with them and cursed them. And that doesn't mean he used curse words like you think of, cuss words. And smote certain of them, listen what he did next, and plucked off their hair. And made them swear by God, saying, Ye shall not give your daughters unto their sons, nor take their daughters unto your sons, 
or for yourselves. Now, here I want you to notice verse number 24 again. And their children spake half in the speech of Ashdod and could not speak in the Jews' language, but according to the language of each people. Now, what happened here is because of all these unholy alliances, it had caused that the children of Israel, the young kids growing up, they couldn't any longer speak in the Jews' language. Let me spiritualize that for you. In our society today... In our homes, there's so little said about God. There's so little concern about prayer and about our Bible reading that our children don't know anything at all about God. They don't speak God's language. And I dare say that we have parents in our church who can go all week long. They never pray before a meal. They never mention God in their home. Some of them won't bring their kids to Sunday school. They won't bring them to Pioneer Club because they just don't care. They just don't care. And their kids can speak TV and their kids can speak video games and they can speak the language of the godless schools that they attend, but they don't know enough to speak the language of Jesus. I thank the Lord for this. I was raised in a Christian home. I I thank God for that. Today we have Christians but we don't have Christian homes. And you can't say that you have a Christian home if Christ is not in your home. Don't call it a Christian home. And there are some of our people who will lose their kids to the world. Their kids will go off and maybe they won't be saved. Maybe they'll turn their backs on the church altogether. And the reason for it is because their parents put recreation And jobs and getting a little bit further ahead in life, they put those things ahead, the material things and all of that stuff, ahead of keeping their kids in a good, solid church. Nehemiah said, they can't speak any longer in the Jews' language. And our kids can't any longer speak the Lord's language. And I'll tell you this, if you don't speak the Lord's language at home, your kids will not know the Lord's language. So keep your family holy. Keep them in the Bible. Keep your kids in the church. Keep them in a place where they will know and learn about the Lord. Now that's how this story ends. Nehemiah went back to trying to kindle that fire in Israel once again. Get the revival fires going. And he had to throw on some more fuel to get this fire fired up again. And sometimes the measures that Nehemiah took were not pleasant measures. And we have to do that sometimes. I said a moment ago, we've got to get down serious about some things. And people might get offended by Berean Baptist Church and what we stand for. I can't help that. We're still going to stand on the Word of God. We're still going to preach the Word of God. And if you get offended, you just have to get offended. That's the truth of it. So the, the, the book of Nehemiah actually ends with something. It really ends with something that we would totally expect from somebody like Nehemiah. You see, Nehemiah was one of those people like the Apostle Paul. Paul said, pray without ceasing. And this book ends with one of Nehemiah's impromptu prayers. I mean, he was the kind of guy that just at any moment, he'd just stop everything that he's doing and start talking to the Lord. He would start, pray, start praying. And this is what he does in the very last part of the book. Look at verse 31 in the very last sentence of the book. He said, remember me, oh my God, for good. Remember me, oh my God, for good. That's the last sentence of the book of Nehemiah. Do you think that we could remember Nehemiah for his good? After reading all of this and saw what he did? 
You know, we don't find anything written in the book of Nehemiah at all that impugns his character in any way. He's a guy who who stood for the Lord. Now, here's the last statement for the series. Last statement on your listening sheet. Brother Dalton sang it. May all who come behind us find us faithful. Nehemiah said, remember me, O my God, for good. When you think about that, all of the people that have lived throughout history, why is it that we remember some people and we don't remember others? Well, I can tell you this much, that we remember Nehemiah because God remembered him. And God put him right here in this book. And we're able to come behind now and we can read the story of Nehemiah and found out, find out that God found him faithful. He took time to be holy. And that's why he was remembered. Now, folks, neither you, you nor I, we, we may never be famous. Nobody may remember some great work that we did, but I sure hope this is true, that when we die, that those who knew us would be able to look at our lives and they would say that he or she was faithful. And they're not going to remember and say, well, that guy, you know, he's the one who lived in the big house over there. There's the fellow that had a nice BMW to drive. And there's the fellow who became vice president of his company. That's why we remember him. No, I want to be remembered because somebody would say about me and I hope about you, they were faithful. Remember me, oh my God. That's what Nehemiah said. Remember me for good, oh my God. And I hope that you want to say that tonight. Remember me because I've been faithful and I hope that's what you are. May all who come behind us find us faithful. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this great series that we've had in Nehemiah. We thank you, Lord, for a man who stood for you, who loved you, who is faithful. And, Lord, that in everything that he did, he wanted his character to shine forth like the character of Jesus Christ. I ask you, Lord, that we would look at the things that we've talked about tonight, that the people would remember this. There's, there are areas of our lives that we need to keep holy. We need to be sanctified and set apart for you. Speak to our people tonight. Lord, draw us close to you, and may we make a commitment right now that we will be a holy people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.